You are now listening to the Claim It Podcast with me, your host, Trisha Huffman, your joyologist. On this podcast, I have conversations with people who intrigue and inspire me. We get into their whole journey, well, as much as we can. (laughs) Talks about the ups and lows, how they got to where they are today, the hardships, the upsets, the joys, what motivates them, all of it. Well, most of it, a lot of it. Because I believe that our feelings of being successful, worthy, lovable, enough are not out there somewhere. Once I have the book deal, once I meet this person, once I'm on this stage, then I'll feel it. Then I'll feel worthy, enough, successful. You might a little bit, but oftentimes if we keep putting it outside of ourselves, we just keep chasing it. So it is up to us to claim it for ourselves every single day, sometimes every moment of the day. In today's episode, I had the best time talking to Jessica Care Moore. Wow. She is amazing. She's done so many things, is doing so many things. Executive producer of Black Women Rock, the founder of the literacy-driven Jessica Care Moore Foundation. She's an internationally renowned poet, playwright, performance artist, and producer. She has been on stages around the world performing at the Apollo Theater, Carnegie Hall, Lincoln Center. I can't even tell you about all the amazing things this woman has done. So let's get right into the episode. So I like starting with like, how did you grow up? What was life like for you growing up? And especially the teenage years, because I think we can start to be like, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? (laughs) (laughs) I know, right? Hilarious. So I grew up, I live in Detroit now. I've lived in New York and I lived in Atlanta and, and uh, but Detroit, I grew up on the west side and uh, I grew up on the border of Dearborn, Michigan, which Dearborn has, if people don't know, like we, the largest Arab population outside the Middle East. We have the biggest masjid. And so very like African-American working class community on the west side, but on the border of a working class Arab and Polish community. So really intersection of cultures and interesting uh, a way to kind of grow up with different kind of food and like all the movie theaters I went to, they had Arabic on it. And so it was really um, informed me in a really cool way in growing up. And I grew up on a block full of kids. Like literally, like we played running bases and we played hide and seek. I rode my, my Panther, you know, 10 speed, my pink Panther 10 speed, like around. We didn't have, we didn't wear, we don't know what bike lanes. Uh, I grew up without helmets, seatbelts, <laughs> all that kind of shit, you know, like, um, and I survived, <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> My son is so protected by all the things. Like, do you owe your knee pads? Your, you know, and, uh, and yeah, you need your knee pads, your elbow pads. <laughs> listen, I didn't have none of that. I'd scrape my knees and you put on Band-Aids, you know? And so um, even car seats, we didn't have. And I grew up in my father's Cadillacs. And so Cadillacs were like the only thing I thought a car was growing up in Detroit. I thought that just Cadillacs were just normal cars. And uh, I write about my father's Cadillacs. And he was, you know, very, very, I'm a, I'm a daddy's girl. My, my father um, was a big influence in, in who I am today. My, both my parents working class. My mother worked for the phone company. It wasn't an artist's house. Um, I, I just happened to be the artist that came out the house. My, my, other even my brothers and sisters, they're all blue-collar working folks, man. They're, they're right, work at the post office, do IT. I'm the weirdo. And, uh, and I have been this way my entire life. So I loved animals. So I thought maybe I'd be a veterinarian. Um, and then I fell in love with, with people and uh, I was, I was already, I was just a weirdo, man. I, I loved to read. I was a nerd. My mother 
had books. My mother read memoir and fiction. And so the reason why I'm a poet is because my mother read memoir and fiction. And then she gave me poetry. And she gave me like Lorraine Hansberry to be young, gifted and black. She gave me uh, Alice Walker and Maya Angelou, very young. So she, I, my mother reads, like I said, she eats books. And so I read, I speed, I read very fast. And so, but that's all she had. She was a hippie, you know, my mother's from Canada. She married my crazy wild daddy from Alabama who was living in Detroit. He like hit her over the head in Canada and brought her over to this country. And she had never seen like racism or nothing, you know, like she was like this woman, she was born in England, in Wolverhampton, England, a place that I've been. I actually just performed virtually in Wolverhampton, interesting enough, and been there a few times. And in the middle of the west side of Detroit, and um, which was a changing city with just working class black folks. And she grew up around that and she had four children with my father. And I had a good childhood, you know, like having siblings was fun. You know, I hope my son's childhood is very different. You know, this time period is very different. I was born in what I call the sleepy time. So I was born in the 70s. And so the 60s riots had happened, but you couldn't tell. You know, like we, could, we were up thinking, oh yeah, segregation wasn't happening. But fights were still happening against like racial injustices. And my mother, my mother boycotted Dearborn because they didn't want Detroiters in their parks. Hemlock Park was like the best park closest to us because Dearborn was across the street. So we always rode our bikes to Hemlock and it became this thing where they didn't want, you had to have, a, make, they wanted to make an ID card so you couldn't get in the pool. That's a way, so that was a way of saying we don't want black kids. In- right. So that's what I was going to say. It's like they weren't actually saying, oh, black kids aren't allowed. But so if you're from this area, because that demographic is majority. Yeah, it was. Or- yeah, Detroit, was, it's super black now. And it was definitely millions of black folks then. And so um, and so I grew up there. I grew up in a really working class household, very loud, lots of kids. And my brothers, you know, I had older brothers. They were jerks and tortured me. And it made me strong as a girl. And um, my poetry, I mean, they're all in my poems. I, mean, I, written, I haven't written heavily about my family, but I stick it in there sometimes, you know. And, the, and we want our bodies back. There's a poem, I used to be a roller coaster girl. It's one of my favorite poems in the book. And it's kind of about my childhood and how, because I was, I ran around with my, bro- I tried to keep up with my brothers. I came after my brothers. And um, there's, I have five biological brothers, but the two in my house are just these tall, lanky black boys. That was like, I wanted to go run around. Whatever they were doing, if they were jumping a fence, I was trying to jump the fence. They're playing basketball. I'm playing basketball. And so I grew up like that. You know, it was a really, uh, I had a good childhood. I can say that. So when you, uh, were you, you like said you you were like sort of always artistic or or whatever. And like, yeah, did you, what did that look like? Because yeah, you're chasing your brothers, like doing these things. But like, were you like, did you, besides reading, like, did you like get into like art, like drawing, like, you know, or is it just knowing? draw. Yeah, I used to draw like Mickey Mouse figure, Disney figures. You know, I could draw a little bit, but I was writing. Uh, I was yeah, writing. Yeah. I think I was infatuated with V.C. Andrews books for some reason. I like Flowers in the Attic. I, I liked these books. They were just crazy books. Um, but I was trying to write like my first novel. I think when I was nine years old. Oh, and wow. Trying, you know, I'm still trying to write it now, you know. Um, and, and then as I got older, I went into high school. It, poetry kind of took over. I love poetry. And I, I wrote about dumb stuff like boys I was infatuated with death and you know just all the things that you're a teenager you get all like dark and interesting and and then um I got more politicized and and that's what changed the voice I think when I when people started asking me about I remember there was this big thing for me I think I was just at St. St. Alphonsus I went to predominantly white Catholic schools from uh, first to eighth grade and then were you yeah one of few 
I know all the black kids in the class. Yeah. Yeah. Like, because I went, I grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio, and went to Catholic schools. And yeah, there was like a handful of black kids. I was one of the handful of black kids in the school. Yeah. And so you never get to be. Um, you know, it's funny because the boys, the white boys that I knew like me, but, you know, thought I was pretty, would could never tell me. So you can, in those situations, it's, it's, I would never do that to my son because I, I could never be the prom queen or the homecoming queen. You can never be the most pretty because all the white girls are going to win in that situation. And the white boys might even find you pretty, don't tell you, until you're on Facebook 20 years later. <laughs> and then they're like, yo, I always thought you were pretty. <laughs> Like, oh, okay, uh, I'm not gonna say their names, but they are out there. They are. Shout out to Saint Alphonsus. <laughs> you know, it's like, and that's and that's what it is. And so it's unfortunate. So I, I, when I went to Cody for high school, I was scared. This is an all predominantly black Detroit public high school, and I was like, I don't know, Pippi Longstocking. I was so weird. I was Mitch Match socks. I was Punky Brewster, and 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 talk like a white girl, and. Yeah, I was, it was awkward. I was awkward black girl. And the thing that saved me was sports. I played everything. So cause chasing my brothers around right. baseball, I was a four varsity letterman. So, you know, whatever I can, I dribble that ball up the court and I can catch that ball, the softball real fast, the second base. And so that saved me from being a complete nerd and strange is with sports. And, um, but it was, I had those two different worlds and, and they all shaped me and it's all in the poems, man. Like it all, it, it made my worldview better. You know, I, I got to have a different worldview. I got to have, I inter- I knew what it was like to be the only black girl in the class and then I knew what it was like to be around a lot of black girls that I have a lot in common with. <laughs> yeah. I realized early that, you know, black folks and black, we're not a monolith and that, you know, we're layered and different and um, all these things play a role in, in who we become, but the political voice started um, pretty much in in high school when I started caring about the world in a different kind of way around eleventh grade, I think is when it happened. Do you remember like what it was it a certain like incident or in in your life or in the world that made you start to want to speak up or write about it? Yeah, I mean, there's I think even before high school though, early on, I remember there was a essay that I wrote, I think in junior high school about the multicultural category. And um, I was against it. And so being though I, wrote, I grew up in a very culturally diverse home, which is my mother's from Wolverhampton, England, she's not black. And then my, but my father's from Alabama and as black as man I ever known in my life. And so his blackness and his, uh, his positioning in my home, very patriarchal home with my two brothers, um, all these black kids and my mom was just kind of in the middle of us <laughs> trying to balance it all out. I'm just, what I'm trying to say is that there was an essay I was writing. Yes, there was an essay I was writing and it was about the multicultural category. And even though I came from this diverse home, I was against the category because I grew up so black. I grew up so rooted in my blackness. There was no, my mother, um, I, I give her lots of credit for allowing me to become who I became. She didn't push, she didn't have an agenda, you know? And she's not American to this day. And so... I think that just was different, that my family was Canadian, that we were loved by my grandparents, about my cousins, I'm very close to them. But uh, my mother basically just realized she was in a black community. And so she, and I tell folks now, like white folks, like the census form, I said, if you live in a black community and you're white, or if you have black children and you're white, on the census form, you should just say you're black. Because it's really not about what color you are. It's about money that's going to come to the school system that you're in. And so, you know, and so I, I wrote this essay 
um, very much like against this category. And it's something that I've stayed with. I wrote a poem later in my first book called Box This that I later read mm-hmm. in South Africa. That was when I read it in South Africa, that's been under a thing called apartheid, which is Jim Crow on steroids. And um, because of the way that I look and the way that I talk, you know, South Africa was like, I can't, I don't know if you can cuss, but it was a mind fuck. Oh, I mean, yes. Like, you yeah. can cuss. So it was a big mind fuck being in South Africa, looking the way I look and speaking the way I speak. Um, it confused some people because it was so black and so confidently um, and uh, black and celebratory of my blackness and not as a burden, but also something that I, I found it to be the thing that made me beautiful. You know, I didn't, I didn't grow up thinking that blackness was ugly. Blackness was something you celebrate, but that was from my father. My father was beautiful and his, he could dance and his, um, he was independent and, you know, everything that uh, I'd look for in a man now, to be honest, and is really a great role model for me. And so, but having coming from that all white kind of Catholic school tutelage and then going to all Detroit, you know, all predominantly black Detroit public school really, and that my son is doing the same thing. So I put my son, my son is 14 and I'm a single parent and I've been raising him since he was 10 months old and he's been in private school until now. So now he's at the Detroit School of the Arts and that struggle, um, that fight, to just get my son to be treated like other kids has been a struggle. It's deep, but now he's at Detroit School of he's at a public school and we're enjoying it. It's like the best school experience we've had and I don't have to pay for it. So <laughs> there's that. <laughs> oh my God, it's free. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I have uh, two, I'm like, I'm just starting the school system. I have a three-year-old and a five-year-old. <laughs> yeah, I miss, oh, you're gonna, oh yes, hold on. Enjoy every moment because they're gonna turn 12 and then you're gonna call me like, did you come and get them? Like, you know, I love my son, but to a point. <laughs> and then I'm like, please get, I need a mommy break. I love you. You're four, he's 14 now. And yeah, he's a beautiful kid. He's a poet and a musician and a piano player and he's all the things. So I'm blessed. So getting back to that, that initial, that reason. So that was like filling out like paperwork or something, or right? Like filling out and you would need to mark like I, I am white, one. black, Asian. I refused to mark it. My teachers were mad at me. I remember. And there was, but there was something there that was what? Other black, white. And I, I, I looked at it and I said, I don't feel, I don't feel like I should have to fill this box out. I was like, I was young when I did that. I'm trying to remember. I was definitely at St. Al. So I was not more than like sixth grade, fifth mm. grade. And I said, I don't want to fill this out. I don't, why does it matter? And I, it was for a testing we were doing, some bubble test, you know, that they love to give kids. Oh, like walking. state test or something. Yeah, like, yeah, one state test. And I was like, I just, I don't want to do that. And um, the teacher was like, you have to pick one. I said, according to who? Why, why do I have to? And so I was just being a little jerk, you know, but, but, um, and pushing back, but um, the pushing back never stopped. And then Intazaki Shange, who wrote for Color Girls, this play was brought into my black box theater through my drama teacher, Susan Story, who I adore to this day. She came to my last, my play opening in, in 20 last year. So we're still in touch with my drama teacher from high school, from Cody, and she was a revolutionary teacher. It takes those one or two teachers, man, that you can, can really change everything about what happens to a kid. And Susan Story is responsible for changing my life in that way. And I, I tell her that, again, I get to tell her that. You know, you brought for color girls, into a black box theater and my mind got blown. And so then I went to the library on Joy Road up the street from my house and I found Audrey Lord, Sonia Sanchez, you know, uh, Jen Cortez, the black arts movie writers, Broadside Press, Dudley Randall, Naomi Long Magic. I was like, I felt like something had been kept for me my entire life, you know? And I was an A student in English. Yeah, I was, I was whipping through I Am A Pentameter. 
You know what I mean? But no, no one really pulled me to the side and said, you need something more? You need some, here's, here's some other books. The only person that did that is my mother. And, and she didn't come up knowing about those writers. She just saw her daughter being interested in something and like, let me give her something else That's that the so school's great. not giving her. So. And so was that the teacher that you mentioned? Was she, uh, was she theater teacher? She did, you, you got, did you get involved in theater? Absolutely. Yeah. I was in West Side Story and I was in um, To Kill a Mockingbird. I learned about three quarter rounds. And so like this beautiful black box theater at Cody High School doesn't exist at Cody High School anymore. I think Aww. it's like, I think it's like the storage bin. They always talk about the place with the store. I just and so they've taken they destroyed our schools here, you know, and they destroy schools everywhere. Um, but Detroit, especially. And they wonder why kids are not doing well. It's on purpose. You know, you don't have drama. The bands are gone. There's no music classes. You don't have art. You know, art is like this whatever thing that's on the side when art should be in the center of curriculum. And that's the thing that I push often. And I, if I get, we want our bodies back, I'm teaching it at Grinnell College, short course in the spring for 21. So I've already done two class visits already in the fall. So excited. Um, but that's university. And we want our bodies back really needs to be in high school. Like it's- yeah. For all girls, because people, because I'm black, right? Because I'm a brown girl, everyone puts it towards just brown girls and black girls, but white girls need me too. Um, Asian girls need me too. <laughs> they all need me. The girls need to see there's a poet that's not uh, dead, <laughs> that can, <laughs> for one, <laughs> I'm alive, right? <laughs> Hello. Yeah, I, every poet I learned about in school was dead. Angelo. Yeah, no, I feel like that's why it's like poetry still can almost feel like, oh, you're allowed to do that? Like in the current world, you know, because it does, it feels like some, some mystical thing that happened like hundreds of years ago. These people wrote these things we call poems. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> I'm like, and I get it. You know, I'm like, I was infatuated with Emily Dickinson um, and Sylvia Plath was my favorite. I still love Sylvia Plath because I just like, I like wild ass women. And Emily Dickinson, you know, locked herself in the room. Like she like that. Like I really, you know, I felt connected to these, but that's who I knew. That's who I was being taught. You know, you learn about Emily Dickinson. At least you don't learn about a lot of women, but I learned about her. And so they, but then one taught me Sonia Sanchez. I did not learn about the Harlem Renaissance. Maybe Langston Hughes. Okay, maybe. I'm gonna think I for sure did not listen about the Harlem. But but think about it's a white all girl Catholic. Well, not white, majority white all girl Catholic. All girl Catholic, but it doesn't make any sense that they didn't teach you about. No, I know. Now I'm like, why? I was. I've I've been like, is there some? Was there like some extra schooling that I missed out on? No, you got the U.S. education, which which is mediocre at best and very um, racially whitewashed, and yeah. yeah, and it's just wrong. It's just not right. It's like, it's not global. And our kids, like my babies, your children, they're three and five. They need global education. They don't need secular, insular, weird. They need all the things. They need Japanese haiku. They need, you know, African writers, writers from the diaspora, like Caribbean writers. I, but I'm self-taught. So, you know, I didn't even go get my master's, but I can teach master's courses, right, in poetry. But I taught myself, I was a very curious young person. I, something I don't see always, unfortunately, in students. I see a lot of apathy in, in college students and a lot of boredom in high school. And I wanted to know everything in the whole world. But my son is my my child. I made him. He's that. He wants to know everything about everything. But it's because he's got his tentacles out because I've given him so much stimulation 
And unfortunately, a lot of young people don't get the stimulation. They just sit these kids inside on in desks and tell them to sit and be quiet. My son asked me once because he was at a Catholic school um, from for, for all since fifth grade, sixth grade. And I, I can't believe I tortured my child with Catholicism, but I did. And I was like, look, you just got to go to the school where you won't get bullied a little bit, a little less anyway. And he said, is this a prison or a school, mommy? He said, and I was like, why do you say that? He said, I just feel like they don't want you to breathe, you know, that I can't even sneeze. I just have to sit there and be quiet and look straight. And I was like, I got to get my son out of this, man. But you do it. You know, I do it as a mom. You know, I have this beautiful, lanky, tall, beautiful black boy. And he, he's just getting smarter and taller. And you just do it for safety. And then you, then it's, but it's still not safe in the private schools. You know, I don't want him to get bullied. I took, when, I, when he went to free school, he got bullied a lot by kids that look like him. Um, but that didn't have his life experience. And so he's weird. You know, he's, been, he's well-traveled. He's, my skin has been to more places at, by seven than I had been at 20. Yeah, you know, his yeah. life is much well, different. Probably more than most people have been, period, in their lives still. In the period, you know, he's been everywhere. You know, he's performed in Shanghai as a young poet. And he's performed in West Africa with me. He did workshops. So and, amazing. And, I mean, yeah. And so shout out to his life <laughs> you know he's having a he's having a good time like i don't think he's gonna it's gonna set into him how fly his life is until later um but he's still grappling he's still grappling with racism he dealt he got treated really horribly at a, a all boys catholic school he went to um in detroit had a horrible year you know um, could feel the difference of how his white guy friends were being treated as opposed to him um some of the, the public humiliation that he had experienced um from administrators and He's got a, he got the lesson hard, you know, and I hate, you know, we cry. I've cried about it. I felt guilty about it, but I'm simply just trying to get my son to, to be safe, you know, in like safety, right? I'm on the new Common album. I don't know if you've heard it, but Common has a new album called Beautiful Revolution that just came out like me like a week or so ago. No, and I haven't I, heard it yet. My, my poem opens the album and it's called Beautiful Revolution. Oh my God. Amazing. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's really dope. Shout out to Kareem Riggins, who's from Detroit, who made that happen. Beautiful producer and one of my favorite drummers in the whole world. But, you know, I, the, I think I, one of the lines is, isn't it um, amazing or something uh, powerful just to feel safe? You know, and I, that's such a small thing to want, like to aspire. But as a mom, that's what I worry about, my son's safety more than anything when I'm not with him. I've protected him and I'm protecting him as much as I can in the bubble of the world, artistic world that I've uh, carried him in. But I worry every time I'm not, I'm away from him that I just, I worry. And I'm trying to work on that. I mean, cause this world is unforgiving. It's an unforgiving place. And um, he thinks he knows everything. He's like, because he's smart, you know, mommy, the police, I know my rights. <laughs> well, okay, baby. But they don't like smart black boys. So I, you know, I get it, but that's not going to save you and it won't stop you from them from killing you, you know? Um, and so, you know, you do your best, you know, you do your best, but I do have some hope now, you know, Michigan is a blue state. <laughs> so we yeah. have a lot of hope. <laughs> I mean, I definitely, you know, I think I for sure was aware of the privilege I have as a white person, but at the same time was, afraid to admit it to myself maybe yeah. until this year in a lot of ways and I have like you know I um 
I worked. I was. I worked. I was a sound live sound engineer for many years. I was honored. I got to work with Common a lot because I worked at House of Blues Chicago. Oh, and he used to okay, come sweet. So I was like, yeah. But um, anyway, so you know, I'm someone that was not like I was with black people a lot. I toured with Natalie Cole for years and her oh, entire black Lord, band and crew. Like, <gasps> oh. so I have dear black friends, and so, but still, it's like you know. And I get it. Like, I'm just saying like, oh, but I have black friends. So and I've got some white like, ones. It's okay. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah. <laughs> and they're beautiful. Like, oh, my God. But like waking up this year to like, yeah, the realities of like, yeah, like you're worrying about your children being safe. Like, of course, I will worry about my children safe. But it's a totally fucking different thing yeah, that I, I don't. Know. And it's like that thing. And it's yeah, I and I'm witnessing right now. And I'm like fragile right now because I am witnessing white people that I know that are still like, everything's not about white privilege, Trisha, and like, whatever, like, you know, when I'm like trying to now like point well, out. Well, you only can say that if you have white privilege. <laughs> exactly. And I'm like, and so I'm now really fucking getting it so much more of like, Oh my God! I and thought I, I knew. White people should be walking around like feeling like overwhelmed. I thought I, I knew, I and I didn't know. And then I thought I knew, and just so like I'm constantly, but yeah, like you know, the fact of like yeah, the worrying for the safety thing, like it's like that's one thing that can we mm. realize as white people, or right. like that that's something that we don't have to worry about as much. We all are worried about our kids, and In some ways, what's going to happen? And yes, there are a lot of unsafe situations and terrible people and stuff out there. But yeah, like that the color no. of. My I kids sat in the lobby. protects them from a lot of things. I sat in the lobby. My son plays ice hockey, right? I mean, it was a, with a predominantly um, black team in, in, in Detroit. Where Detroit, black boys play hockey in Detroit. So he plays hockey. Uh, we're across the street from Canada. It, it's a part of our culture. And so people don't know that. But he's been playing since he was like seven. And But I took him to this all- this this white camp basically. I mean, just a, it's a hockey camp, but mostly white kids are going to be probably the best camp. University of Michigan. I pay is a lot of money, and I wanted him to have a different kind of experience with white boys. And then white boys been playing since they were three. I was like, go on a skate with them. Do you know? I sat in the lobby, terrified. Like I cried in the lobby. I dropped him off. Not the parents didn't. None of the other parents really spoke to me. I dropped King off, and I was so scared because it was an all day camp, and uh, for like a week, intensive, and. I, I couldn't leave. And at 11 o'clock, they had lunch. And I went back in to make sure he wasn't sitting by himself. And he was. And I sat at the table with him. And, um, and I was like, are you OK? He said, I'm OK. He said, I said, well, did you make any friends? He said, I made one friend. I said, I said but you know, at lunchtime, the one friend who was really nice and didn't sit with him at lunch. And he sat with the other boys. And I said, it's OK. I said, but you know what? In life, you just need one. I said, so that's okay. They had the one. I said, mommy's gonna sit here with you until lunch is over. And I sat and had lunch with them. And he he made it through the week of the camp. But my heart was tortured the whole time because you just it's not even about hockey. It's like, is he gonna make a friend? Is he gonna not have to sit by himself? You know, geez, oh peach, this place that raises these kids that look at him and don't see a person, don't see just another boy to play with. And that's how my son looks at other kids. Yeah, to see, oh, wow, you're here because you really like hockey and want to get better, too? Me, that's too. It. Like <laughs> That's it. And that's the connection. But um, And kids figure it out, but parents ruin these children early, you know? And so we have work to do. I feel like my kid, Generation Z or your children, have to be the ones to save this place. They really do, you know? I can do my best. I can't know if I can save it with poems. I'm doing my damn best, you know? And and we push through and we try as artists and, you know, God bless the DJs during this pandemic and God bless the poets and the visual artists and the writers who have been able to articulate, like, the thing that you might be feeling. Like, and that's my job. It's like, I can figure out how to connect to people from all places 
and get them to feel something. And then we can take that to an action. Like, how do we build bridges once the poem is done? Okay, how do we get past that? Once this interview is done, how do we, the people that are listening, what can you do? And I'm like, you know, someone's like, maybe we need to like, you know, like find a black friend or whatever, but <laughs> you know, for a friend for a day, you know, like figure it I'm out. I'm not gonna lie. I walk, when I see black people now, I want to be like, hi, I like you. Don't like anyone. Just like ridiculous. I'm laughing. Like this is, I don't do that. Uh, but like, that funny. is like my energy of like, I just want you to know. But you know what? I appreciate that more than the unknowing. Because right now, this country, I mean, 70 million people voted for Trump. So I would, when Trump won, and I, because I travel for a living, when I was getting on those planes, and I sometimes I'm like, I'm sitting in first class or Delta Comfort, and I'm looking around at all the white boys and their briefcases, and I'm like, you motherfuckers. You know, like, what do you think about me? You know, and some of them never speak. I've been on this plane with so many white men, and then I've been on a plane with lovely white white people that talk to me to death and I just want to like put on my sunglasses and tune them out. So it's usually the opposite. It's usually like someone that really wants to talk to me and get it in or it's the, I don't even see you first class people, you know, so interesting. But when he won, so I feel better already about traveling again. Like when president Obama was in office, I was like, <laughs> I'm good. Like the, and then we know that Biden and, and Kamala, Paris are not our saviors. I'm definitely not like down with the Democratic Party on that level. I'm like, yeah, everything blue, you know? No, nah, but right now it was about evil versus good. Like we have to get the evil out and on whatever the other side well, of that is. And the fact that he's even bringing up that racism exists and like that trying to do something like whatever. Like, yeah, oh, he's not going to save the world, but like the fact that... <laughs> Women are going to do that, just so we're clear. Like, black nothing with a penis good. is going to do it. It can be black women, but it's going to be women. It's not going to be a man because men want to roll everything up. And it's just, my son yeah. wants to, too. I were, he's, this is a peace hippie household, and he still want a damn. Can't wait to get across the street to play with his friends so they can shoot each other with play guns. I mean, it's just a testosterone thing. I, women are going to save this planet. And I think that's, that's just what it is. And Kamala, I, you know, I'm so excited. I am. And, you know, she's not perfect. My, my friends in California were like, they weren't feeling her politics. And I was like, and I was talking to my son about it. He's like, man, what's up? And I was like, we have to give her a chance. We have to, we've given worse people chances. We got to give her a chance. Let's give her a chance. Let's, let's, and we're going to hold her accountable. You know what I mean? Let's hold her accountable. Yeah, everybody's got resumes. That Biden is not as problematic for sure um, in his past. He's said lots of problematic things. But I'm, I'm voting for Joe. And I've met him, actually. Him and my son actually met each other. I was, I was getting the Great Expectation Award from the NAACP um, in 2015, I think, or something. And uh, we were on the dais together. But he met King. He was so warm. He called King, my son, the president. He said, hello, Mr. President. And King said, hello. You know, it was so cute. It was the whole time was, hello, Mr. He said, when you become president, will you make me your vice president? And he was like, yes. You know, and then it was just lovely. And then I, I, his speaker service was moving around because he was our keynote speaker. I was on the executive board of the NAACP then. He, I could tell that he was about to leave early. You know, you could just tell the secret service is standing up. I was like, I was like, oh, King, I'm not going to be able to give Joe Biden my book. And he's the vice president then. I said, because he's going to leave early. And he's like, oh, yes, you are. And this is my little one with his little suit on and his little hat. Grabs my book, runs past secret service. His hat fell off. Secret service picked his hat up, gave it to him. They let him go all the way to the podium where Joe Biden was standing. And at the podium? At the podium. <laughs> my child, King, was like, uh, he's, yes. about get, he's about to get this book. <laughs> and so, uh, Sound Like the Bullet Holes. It was this book. It's, I have a picture. I'll send it to you. It's so funny. So King is giving Joe Biden the book. Joe Biden is lovely, leaning in, trying to sign the book for King. And you should see his face. He's looking at it like, he's like, no. no. 
<laughs> he was like, I don't want your, I don't want your autograph. I was like, I want, he's like, I want you to have the book. And he said, oh, you, this book is for me. Okay, then I need to keep this book. He was like, okay. So I know that the vice president oh. got my damn book. So, <laughs> and right. so yeah. It's me, Trisha, bringing you a brief interruption. If you have not heard yet, and if you have not gotten it yet, I have this an amazing new product out in my shop. Yes, I have a full line of products to empower you to claim your worth, your joy, and to own your awesome. So the new product is a daily intention, connection, and reflection journal. So it has the same prompts on each page for you to fill in, to get connected to yourself, be intentional for your life, to show up for the things that you want, to focus on how you want to feel each day, to celebrate your wins and joys and what you're grateful for today in this moment. And also the final daily prompt is self-acknowledgement every single day because we are so often so hard on ourselves what we have not yet done today, what I didn't get done off my to-do list, where I haven't yet accomplished, looking outside of ourselves, comparing ourselves. I want you to constantly be bringing it back to you, looking at yourself, celebrating yourself and acknowledging yourself. So every single day, there's these prompts. They're easy prompts, reflective prompts. You can do it in a couple minutes. And on the back side of each page, there's a lined page so that you can use that for full journaling, to brainstorm, for more of like collective to-do list items. Also in the Daily Connection Journal, there is a top three want to do as part of the prompts. So it also gets you intentional in your life. What is the most important things for me to do today? It's wire bound, opens up flat, folds over easily. It's amazing. If I do say so myself, I do say so myself. It's brand new, but I've been getting lots of feedback of people that really loving how simple it is, but also how powerful it is. So go check it out at shop.yourjoyologist.com. It's a daily connection journal. There's two different covers. One just says simply today and the other one says I am connected to me. The direct link will be in the show notes. Acknowledge yourself, celebrate yourself every single day. Let's jump back into okay. the journey of your life. Cause yeah, you just got your own executive order of the NAACP. You're getting an award. Like, yeah. So, okay. Yeah. So you're in high school, you are in musical theater and stuff like that. When, what are you, what happens after high school? And like at that time, then are you like, I'm going to be a writer. I'm going to be a poet. I'm going yeah. to be like, what are you feeling? I'm going to be a journalist. That's I still want to yes. say, yeah. Cause that poetry. feels like a realistic, I like yeah. writing. So That's a job. Is, you need a I'm job. Yeah. You need a job. Yeah, exactly. Somebody's poetry's not a job. So That's what I figured. I'm like, yeah. I'm like, but you don't know. People. Journalism. Gotta, you have to believe in the fact that you can do something in order to make it happen. <laughs> exactly. No, I majored in journalism and political science. So I wanted to be a political reporter or do documentary films for WGBH. And, you know, I, I that's what I wanted to do. And so I wanted to cover world politics. And so that was, I was studying that in Michigan State. But in Michigan State, here I go. I'm at a campus for 50,000 white kids. And I became an activist because the state news was the Michigan State paper that was basically acting like black students didn't exist on campus. And so inside of our tuition, they, they took $2 from every student to pay for the state news. So it was a state, the newspaper was paid for by the student body. And so the 12% of black kids, I organized, helped organize the 12% to go to, because you, you didn't know, you were, the money was taken out of your tuition. 
without you having to say anything. You could actually ask for your $2 back. We found that out and we organized and we got our fucking $2 back. Took the money and started Focal Point newspaper, a black newspaper on campus. And so that's what, that's where activism began for me. Wow. Because also, that's such a great example because it's like $2, but you're all coming together Times, to get your $2. Yeah. It was like, so money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, they, and they, I was like, the, the paper's going to ignore us, then we're not paying for it. And they acted like black students and exist. everything in the newspaper, had, you never saw black faces. It was like we weren't even there, invisible. And so... Uh, I did more organizing at Michigan State than I did anything else. Um, Farrakhan was coming to campus. And that time, Farrakhan was hot. He was young. He was talking lots of shit. And nobody was trying to have him there. And I had never seen him speak. So I didn't know what I thought about Farrakhan, except that I want to hear him speak. And there were 12 Jewish kids and a rabbi, and they basically fighting against him coming. And I was like, what's so funny is that our, my sweet mate is beautiful beautiful energy uh, from, from the thumb. She had never been around black people in her life. But me and my roommate and her roommate, Renee, who's from King High School on the east side of Detroit, was By her. Way, people that don't know Michiganders, they talk about the hand as the part thumb. of the state. So when she says the thumb, she's talking about the part of Michigan. She's from the thumb. Yeah, the thumb. Like she had, yeah, she's, she's from up north, we call it. She's from Michigan. She's not from Detroit. And she was surrounded by black girls from Detroit. And it was interesting because she sat at our table because it was racially segregated. It was the black table, the white table. It was just the silly stuff, right? That was still happening. Um, it's probably, I'm sure it's still happening on campuses now. Hopefully it's better. But there was a whole thing about fair. So we were talking to all the white people in our dorm saying, let's just go see Farrakhan together. Let's, instead of like saying, don't come, let, let's go see him together. And then let's talk about it afterwards and see how we feel. And so we fought, and Farrakhan actually did come that year. It was, uh, I'm aging myself, 1989, 1990. And, and so we got to have a good conversation about it. I didn't agree with everything he said. I agree with some. Some of us was like, no, he's tripping. And then, but we got, that was the learning experience. Yeah, but not having him come wouldn't have taught us anything. So that's what happened to me in college. I left Michigan State, went to Wayne State University. Man, I took over that campus. I was an activist. You know, I saw, I saw boys, and I, I consider myself a void filler now, you know, it's, you know, where I have Black Women Rock that's been going on for 16 years to support Black Women in Rock and Roll, where I started a, a press in 1997 and more Black Press in Brooklyn, New York, and started publishing all the New York poets that were around me. Like, that's just in my DNA to say, okay, what's needed here? And at Wayne State, I was studying journalism, political science. I was writing for Channel 50. I interned at every TV station, news outlet in the city. Thought that was my trajectory. I'm going to become a journalist or online anchor or something. And then the Martin Luther King holiday wasn't being... Classes weren't being closed on the MLK holiday in 1993. And I was the co-president of the Black Student Union. I was on the student chapter of the NAACP and I was not having it. And I was like, we're going to, we're in Detroit. We're Dr. King did I have a dream first. We're going to keep classes open on this day. So the racist professors give extra credit on that day. And we boycotted, we boycotted for several days, black, white, other, all kinds of students came together. Three hundred of us, uh, sat in in front of David David Adamani, the president of the Times office, and sat there and sat there. We refused to eat any of the students in their food. People were sending us lunches to the school, and we won. And we got the King holiday. Uh, to this day, Wayne State University closes classes during the Wayne State holiday because we, the reason why we won is because we wanted to have an event. We didn't want to not come to school. We wanted people to come to school and celebrate the King's legacy. Yeah, so we had poetry and dance and 
the you know president of the university came and it became this whole thing and to this day so that's what i did with my college experience you know <laughs> it was really just about organizing and connecting and seeing what the power we had as students and i was just rowdy and then poetry just became a way for me to get to people to get them to do something my poems were never like let me write a poem about the rainbow no and what were you doing with the poems like even back in college i was reading on open mics oh okay so like go to open mics and was it yeah it's like so is that more like spoken word what, like what was it even being called or was it just i'm reading poetry? they weren't used they have reading poetry yeah that yeah. spoken word that label came like kind of later and i was i was already um a well-known poet before that term came about and then people started trying to call me that and i was like i'm a poet stop calling me this other thing but it was poetry poetry being read aloud is not new i mean um ginsburg read his poems patty smith read her poems so it's funny when white people read their poems they're called poets and then when black people read their poems they're called something else it's just some shit that got on my nerves forever. So I just always made folks, like when I was going to like Columbia or NYU or Yale and all these, and uh, Ithaca College and all these fancy universities, I, I made people call me a poet because I'm not like, I'm a poet like Emily Dickinson, T.S. Eliot, all that shit that you made me regurgitate in high school. I'm a poet like them. Cause I got Eliot, I read that too. I read Frost, you know what I mean? Um, and so why am I not a poet? And so that's, you know, in poetry out loud, um, Definitely, there's some difference. I mean, I, and I work with full music band. I got a jazz soul project. I got a rock and roll concert. I've performed with 12 women with a full orchestra of rock and roll behind me. And um, at the, But when you strip it all down, it's still just a poem. Yeah. It really is. And so, yeah, just hitting open mics. And then I was, you know, trying to get people. I was talking a lot of mess and political. And, and so I think I was an okay poet then. And then I moved to New York City in 1995, became absolutely immersed in the poetry scene. I had read the New York Weekend Anthology book aloud, and I was trying to find every poet in the damn book. I was like, where is these poets? Where's Reggie Gaines? Where's Tracy Moore? <laughs> what were you, did you find them? What They're all my mean? friends. They're my friends. No, so how did you find them? Like, were you, like, what were you doing? <laughs> I moved to Brooklyn. I moved in with this Jamaican girl named Patricia because people in had something called a share. I had never heard that in my life where you move in with a person that you don't know and you get a room. So I moved into Brooklyn with Patricia, and I just hit New York. I knew about the New York and Poets Cafe. It was very well known. And um, Brooklyn Moon Cafe was a thing, spot that had just opened up. And that's where I found, hey man, my first husband was there. My ex-lovers are there. <laughs> my, my best girlfriends are there. The poets I would publish are there. And so Brooklyn Moon Cafe on Fulton Street, which is still open um, in Brooklyn. Um, shout out to Mike, you know, the proprietor. It's got liquor now. We didn't have liquor when we were doing it. In the 90s, he's got like a bar license now. Wow. And, and good food and all that. So he had to expand, you know, to keep it open because all of us graduated and then went off to become, a lot of us, very, very famous poets and writers and, or hip-hop artists. Like, most deaf came out of that scene. Wow. And, and, um, and so I was on the open mic with comedians like Donnell Rawlings and Dean Edwards and um, Dave Chappelle, for that matter, you know. And so it was a, I was a part of the roaring 90s scene, and, but I was um, not afraid of any stages. And so I was only living in New York for five months when I was at the Brooklyn Moon Cafe and Maurice Dwyer, who was an associate producer and is my friend to this day for the Apollo said, I wouldn't say this to many people, but I think you should go read a poem on the Apollo during the amateur night competition. And I was like, what? And he was like, yeah, you should audition. And so he gave me the information and I'm like, hi. So I went and um, Maxine Lewis, who I love to this day, you know, was the uh, booking agent. And I read my poem, The Black Statue of Liberty or whatever. And she pulled me to the side. She said, you're coming on the show. And I, honestly, I didn't even know what that meant. And I was a journalist. I was working for the Daily Challenge. 
So if you so see you my, moved my, to New York, you got a journalism job, but in like your spare time, you are like living at this cafe. It sounds. Like. I was living at the cafe, New York weekend <laughs> in Brooklyn. When I was going to any okay, open mic, okay. New York. I mean, New York had so many places for poets. It was like poet paradise. It was like Uptown had a spot, Brooklyn had a spot, the, the Village had spots, and uh, and I was experimenting in, in, uh, with a lot of music. So drum and bass, jungle. Uh, rock and roll. I was so a lot of us. So were, were you playing the music, or the music is behind you while you read the poem? Yes. Like, okay. For like the yes. experience of okay. experience, live music, word sound power. Like Indazaki Shange, who I saw when I was a little girl in in the Black Box Theater, her work. I saw now at Joe's Pub with a full band with Craig Harris on trombone. Wow. You know, and so poets and, and working with me and Gil Scott Heron. I mean, Gil Scott Heron, who I started gigging with, who's a living, or who's gone now, but was a living legend at the time. And um, I saw the intersection of word, sound, power, and I wanted a piece of it. I wanted to, I wanted to jump in a mosh pit. Like, I wanted my poems like, you know, I'm a, and I'm, you know, people don't compare me enough to Patti Smith, but I'm very Patti Smith. And Patti Smith um, has been a model for me too. I'm actually writing an essay right now on Patti Smith and my connection to her. Um, Cause she lived in Detroit and she has all these Detroit connections and, uh, and uh, was married from the brother from the MC5. And so, yeah, and, and, but she was also like a hippie poet, you know what I mean, with the beat poets and Ginsburg and all that stuff. But this this thing, the skin thing, like stops people from doing that. Right. So I like, can't compare you to her because you have different colored skin. Is that what you mean? Yeah, like, but, yeah. but, I'm all, but I'm all Patty Smith. You know, like, I'm a I'm a I'm a poet. I write literature, and I'm a and I'm a rock and roll artist, and and I'm a music artist. And so why why not? And so I'm do I'm putting myself in context with Patty Smith. So yeah, she needs to call me too. <laughs> I'm trying to reach out to her now. You know, I've got a, a connection to her, so I'm trying to get a hold of her. But I, I'm writing the article regardless because I know I'm connected to her. Um, but this is the silly thing that that divides people that needs to go away. So. Yeah, that's true. Okay, so then you're at the Apollo. Yes, I won. <laughs> it was crazy. I won um, five weeks in a row. It was stupid. Like wow. I had no idea. Uh, I won. So they do the tapings three times in a row. So by the time I won the first time, I started calling my friends like, yo, I just won the Apollo. Like straight up amateur night. And that was when Steve Harvey was the host and uh, Ray Chu was the musical director. Kiki Shepard was the lady doing this. And it was one of the biggest shows on television at the time. It was coming on at one o'clock in the morning. And so I taped it in 95. And by the time, so all of, I think all of December of 95, I taped it in November of 95. All of December in the first week of January, I was on national television kicking everybody's butt with a poem. And yeah, but they taped, like three shows in a day. So I, I won three tapings in a row, then came back on Sunday and then did it again. And then they kicked me off. I never lost. They retired me. <laughs> they retired. They had to retire I was getting requests for my sixth time. They're like, we're going to retire you. Um, you'll, you know, and then later they made me an Apollo legend. I didn't even know. I was living in Harlem. They're like, Jessica, they're on TV going, you know, because they would do like, you know, Natalie Cole, an Apollo legend, you know, Billy Holiday. And so they did the whole Jessica Caremore and Apollo. I was like, oh my God, I live up the street. No one called me. So, you know, my life changed very fast. Uh, like um, all kinds of people knew who I was, members of the Wu-Tang Clan. I mean, it was crazy. KRS-One, you know, Nas. You know, it was everybody, waitstaff, people who worked the trains were like, you're that poet? Shirley MacLaine stopped me in Central Park. Shirley. She's like, I know who you are. I was like, you're Shirley McLean. Stop playing with my life right now. So, I mean, mind you, I'm still learning the trains. I'm, I'm, I'm still trying to get, figuring out Brooklyn, Harlem, Bronx, those borough 
I'm well, still, I'm guessing up too, even though you're on, you're getting that acknowledgement, you're also still like, and I need to pay my d- bills by like doing yeah. my journalism job, <laughs> right? But right. I quit. They were waiting okay. for me to quit. The, um, the, 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 the letters and the phone calls, I said where I worked on national television. Oh. Letters, phone calls. My editor was looking like, any day now, she's going to be out of here. And so I got started getting my first gigs where I could ask for money. And they were like, we want you to come to our 70th birthday party in Jersey. And I was like, okay, would you give me $700? I mean, I was very like seeing Oh, yeah. yes, that's fine. I was like, oh, shit. Okay. You know, so very started like, like okay, next gig. time, maybe I'll try this. Gig. Yeah, like $1,000 and just worked into like, you know, then it became, I got an agent and then it became, okay, better money. And then now I'm working and I've been working ever since. And it's it's a, not an easy life. I've had to recreate myself past that Apollo moment. And I started the press, my More Black Press in 97 and, uh, and published my first book, The Words Don't Fit in My Mouth, sold like 20,000 copies. And I didn't even know that was good, but I did really well. And, and then I used that money to publish Saul Williams' first book, The Seventh Octave. And I just kept using money for that I made from the company. The company wasn't making a whole shitload of money. It's just that I reinvested the money back into books and, and, and publishing poets. So I got like 13 books on the press. I, I took a, taken a really long break from publishing. And I have a wonderful poet named Brad Walron that I'm hoping to publish. She has an incredible book called Everywhere Alien. And I'm hoping to, to, to push the press in a bigger direction with HarperCollins. Um, it's not, there's no paperwork sign, but I'm working on it. Is this the a, first book, um, We Want Our Bodies Back with HarperCollins? My first, yes. The other four, so- my four books are on more black press. And, so, and what back then made you, did you try to pursue publishing back then and get denied? And so then you created your own press? Such a great question. Yeah, I had Faith Childs, one of the most sought after literary agents between her and Marie Brown. Those were the two black women that were killing it. Uh, went after everybody. Um, but so you, know, you had her as your agent, but I did. And no, and that, those white publishing houses were like, turn me down. And it was like, I'm so grateful that they did because it was the best thing that ever happened to me. And I got the rejection letters. I might even have some to this day, but that propelled me. I was like, it made me upset. And I did I cry? Yeah, I cried. I was 23. Crying, like feeling out my feelings, and I was like, "What are you doing? You didn't ever write poems some some big white publishing house was nothing doesn't care nothing about your voice or know anything about you. You care what they think about your poems, Jess? Are you serious?" And I had a little talk with myself, and that was it. And I was like, "All right, more black press. We about to do this." And I'm from the I was the tutelage of Naomi Long Magic and Lotus Press, a black woman that we just lost our Detroit poet laureate. Uh, 97 years young, um, who had Lotus Press and Broadside Press here in Detroit. I knew about Third World Press and Hakeem Adabuti and the work that he's done just publishing Black poets. And I was like, I'm about to do that. And I did my first book. And then Saul Williams, who's very famous now, walked his manuscript over to my house and said, let's make you the Hakeem Adabuti of our generation. And I was like, I don't know about all that, but I'm going to publish your book. So I took my money and I published him. And I published Sharice Simmons, Fast Cities and Objects That Burn. And I've got, I got Raz Barakas on my press. He's the mayor of Newark, New Jersey right now. The son of Amiri and Amina Baraka, very famous uh, poets. And so, and also um, uh, Danny Simmons, who started Deaf Poetry Jam. Russell Simmons' brother. I published his first book of poetry and painting. So people started looking at me as like a very uh, established small press that was pushing out badass poets. And I did that for a long time. It's very thankless work, you know, it's very hard. And then I didn't have, you know, I had some distribution, but small press distribution, Barnes and Noble, small press division helped me out. 
I, I had some, but it's a it's a full time job publishing, you know. So I'm hoping to do it bigger with with Harper. All I need is distribution, and that's what we want our bodies back coming out during the pandemic. As much as that sucked, it was a really good decision that I made with my agent to to put this book out with the with Harper Amistad, who's been very supportive um, of the work, so that it can be distributed widely. Distribution is hard. Yeah, I just got my first book deal. So I'm like, I somewhat understand publishing and like the the like, (laughs) yeah. So I'm even thinking now, like these days it's easier to self-publish. There's, you can do this, whatever you can do print to whatever. Like, so, but my mind is blown with the fact of how many years ago that you were like, I'll just start my own publishing press. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And just do it my damn self and publish all my fantastic friends. And it's not easy. I have friends who have independent books now. My friend um, Brooker Snow just put out his book, Journey to Love, on Amazon. And it's doing really well. My friend Wordsworth, incredible MC, put out his book, New Beginnings. Doing it independently. Like, I'm here for those people. And I support them. I buy their books because I know that's not an easy road. Um, No road to publishing seems to be easy. (laughs) Whether it's you pressing upload on Amazon or you taking it to all the publishers. Exactly. Either way, it's hard, right? Um, But, you know, I've learned a lot, you know, and what's great is that I've been, you know, in this work for such a long time. So I brought a lot to the table with HarperCollins. I know that I have experience and I know how to, I know how to market and brand my work. And so you, you learn that. And, um, and so it's, it's not, it's, 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 it's a journey. You know what I mean? There's, there's ebbs and flows and there's giving, there's a, pros and cons. Um, I'm used to being able to have control. Yeah. And so I've had to let that All the control. Yeah. Yeah. And like, and like knowing all the money and like what my sales are and like, I'm, I'm, you know, and I'm used to flipping my books, you know, like, like, like a drug dealer. I put the money in, I flip the books, I get my money back, get the bag, put some more. And now it's like, oh, so just be a poet and just, okay. And I got my advance and not enough for me to live off of that. I got the advance like 18, you know, it's 2020. So now I got to write more books. And so, I, but I, I, I can say shout out to Patrick Bass. I'm, I love my editor and they support my voice and I'm happy about my, and congrats on your publishing deal. Thank you. Good. Yeah, it's good. It's a good thing. It's a good experience. And if it's not, it's still a good experience. You know, regardless <laughs> of what happens, you experienced it and then you can figure out what you want to do next. So. Yeah. But so, okay. With all the things though, you've mentioned throughout this. Oh yeah. And I, you know, started this, I, I'm not going to name everything right. Like rock girls this oh black oh black women rock yeah black women rock and like so what do you think is inside of you that is like from this even day of college of like let's demand our two dollars back and start our own press and like you know like, <laughs> all with me i not am, what is wrong what is like I, that's I, amazing I and so many people will not you know yeah. do that they will be unhappy about something or they'll just go along with it and not even realize they have an option to right stand up, complain, start something new. something about it. Yeah, Yeah, I'm just not a talker. I'm a doer and I'm a finisher. And so Black on Rock came because I was producing for the National Black Arts Festival because I'm a poet, but I'm also a curator, right? And I love curating voices. I like curating events and producing live art and I'm a live arts curator. It took me years to realize that's what I do. You know, I was like, oh, okay, I actually curate things and, and push voices, amplify voices that are not amplified enough. And so in New York City, I was on the rock, the Black rock scene too. So I was introduced to black rockers and I was like, I'm about this Angelo Moore and Vernon Reed and Greg Tate. I was in some rock band called Medusa Avalangata, three poets, three singers. Like we were just I feel like I know that name. Uh, which one? Medusa Avalangata. Yeah. Well, Why do a, I know that? It's from something else. It's a reference oh. to something else. Okay. We changed it to Medusa. I think it's, it's another name though. I, okay. I have to tell you after this what it is, but that was the name that we created. 
out of this other name. The Greg Tate is crazy, and I love him. And he's a rocker. And so I saw these black rock artists, and I love rock and roll music. Jimi Hendrix growing up, Janis Joplin. But Betty Davis was married to Miles Davis. And she's one of those unsung heroes of rock and funk. She was before her time. She's gorgeous. She's on the cover of Bitches Brew. And I learned about Betty Davis because Amir, uh, Questlove from The Roots, the drummer and producer, uh, saw me at a gig at Wetlands and backstage. And he was like, you smile with Betty Davis' teeth. And I was like, what? He's like, yeah, you look like Betty Davis. So I, was like, I looked her up. He said, you know what I'm talking about? I said, I guess not Betty Davis' eyes. So let me go look her up. And she's just, she looked like she could be my fine ass auntie. She got big afro and, you know, we're from the same tribe. And I was like, yeah, I saw the connection. Then I found her music and I was like, who is this boy? She's got this rowdy, raunchy growl. Oh my God. And she's the one that created basically jazz fusion. She's responsible. She was hanging with Jimmy and flying the, the family, uh, sliding the family stone. And she introduced Miles Davis, her husband at the time, to Jimi Hendrix into rock and roll. And so all the uh, Miles Davis's music was changed and he started like unloosening the tie and getting more open with this thing called jazz fusion, which everyone didn't like the purists didn't like it, but everyone else did. And so I wanted to celebrate. She lives in Pittsburgh. She's alive. She's not, she's with us. And so at the National Black Arts Festival that had kind of literary theater artists, I was like, I want to bring a rock concert to the festival, you know? And they're like, I, Jessica. And so it became, I brought Divinity Rocks. I brought Imani Azuri, I brought Timur Kali. I mean, I know some of the baddest black women vocalists, rockers in the world because of this movement that I started in 2004 that I didn't know was gonna blow up into this huge, this thing that we need because white rock stations don't play their music and black urban radio stations don't play their music. So they are, they remind me of myself, whereas like either Jessica Care Moore is a household name for you and you've already known me and yeah, I've seen her on the Apollo. And I mean, I did some radio interviews today. There was this woman was like, I've been, I was a little, I've been watching you since. So, you know, I have that. And then I'm having, and I have people who are like very brand new. We want our bodies back is the first time they heard of me in this book. And, and I, I love all of that. Right. But black women, right. These, these women are women who've traveled all over the world who have made space for other black women whose voices are phenomenal. Like, I remember, so the concert is annual in Detroit. I've done it at Apollo Theater. You have a Buena Center for the Arts in the Bay Area. I've done it a few times there. And we do it, and we have a conversation about race and inclusion and rock and roll. Just because I can relate to the women. And um, I, because it's like my same voice in poetry. You know, it's either, oh, that's a angry black woman voice over there. They don't, you know, like, and so making those spaces where we are, we deserve all these spaces. We deserve yeah. the radio interviews and yeah. So no, I mean, I'm sure there's people listening out there that were like, "Black rock, huh?" Because well, we, we don't well, we, see well, it. Well, we created it. Because... That's what's funny. Yeah, it's a historical <laughs> check for America because you know Rosetta Tharp. I mean, talk to and talk to Van Halen and like talk to John Bon Jovi. Like talk to these white boys that play rock and roll. Ask them who their influences are. You know, so black rock rock and roll music is just the blues sped up. They've just rebranded it. To make it look like all, all some yeah, some like a long ponytail is like that's so a rock and roll. Fucking record. true, they rebranded it. Uh, yeah. Also, I was thinking, do you know about uh, rock and roll camp for girls? I mean, I, I know there's a lot of different ones now. Yeah, so and, there's and, divisions and all around the country. Yeah, I have um, some of my close friends run the LA division in now San Diego, but that made me really think of that, like you know, because yeah, they're having um, kids and they do it for ladies too. Mm. To, like bring these girls there to like you know and. And they do. They teach a lot of things besides music. And I was just like, oh, yeah, like you should. I would love to be connected with them. Yeah, I would we, did, love we did a camp here in Detroit and it was phenomenal. And they probably a have a division 
in Detroit, but yeah, I'm sure that's they have sort of Girls Rock Detroit, which is yeah. actually here. So yeah, it's Girls- probably like all because it is. It's something you can start your own. Okay, like, gotcha. Within the division, you know, like they will like give you okay. this and then you that. But yeah, it's like such amazing thing of like keep teen girls confidence and this. They come and they learn an instrument for like, but that's also they're learning. You know, come like on. yeah, like confidence, and then yeah, like besides as any color, but then yeah black any ethnicity like showing up and just being like oh right seeing it well, yeah because my issue in detroit is like i bring in the band some of the core band members are from detroit but i never got that lead guitar i always got to fly the lead guitar in my musical director cat dyson and so my issue was like i need black and brown girls to put guitars and basses in their damn hands they need to play guitar you know i feel like i worked with cat Kat Dyson's my musical mm-hmm. director. Yeah, she's oh, yeah. I'm like, I don't know at some point. Remember, I've did sound for a long time. So I'm like, yeah, I think I've I've done gigs with her. She would not remember. You remember a white girl monitor engineer, but she probably wouldn't she remember. Might, she's so fresh, she might remember, honey. She Kat might, is- well, yeah, having a girl sound engineer is pretty rare. So <laughs> Exactly. No, so she probably does. I'll ask her. I will ask her, I promise. How much time do we have left? Yeah, I'm about to uh, get close. They they cut it for 90 minutes, by the way. So you, you probably okay. have time, but I'm about to get to uh, like the final questions. But yeah, again, you've been showing so much like leadership, confidence. I'm just going to do things. I'm going to put things together. What do you do with even the fact? And do you have moments of like, oh, no, my words about the world or oh, this like doubts and fears and stuff. And like, how do you push yourself to keep showing up and like to put yourself out there? Because it sounds like you're just, again, putting yourself out there, out there, out there, out there, you know, saying, listen to me. I got you. I'm going to put people together like you really keep putting yourself in this position. Well, I'm in it now. And then now people are looking at me for it. And so now, now I have a responsibility. Like during the pandemic, I've curated two events for the Charles H. Wright Museum of African American History, hiring uh, artists to, to create online uh, concerts and curating. And people know that I, I'm connected to music community and to literary community. And I know the painters, um, interdisciplinary. I do interdisciplinary work and multimedia shows. And so it's my job. You know, everyone doesn't want to do that. Everyone doesn't want to curate. Everyone doesn't want to produce. Um, I really, you know, you worked in sound. Like I enjoyed the live concert. I enjoy putting talented people on a stage and watching magic go down. Um, so I just kind of, I don't, it's just who I've been. I've been that energy for a long time. Oh, you know, I'm like an energizer bunny. Like I'm, my son doesn't know that I'm old kind of like, I'm like, he thinks I'm like 25 years old. And, and, and so I have a lot of energy and I have, um, and then my imagination, my brain is always working and I'm a creative and I'm in Detroit where I'm not in New York anymore, right? I was in New York. I was, you know, there's so much uh, stimulation there. And then in Detroit, it's much more quiet. I live in the Midwest, you know, it's, um, so in my house, I'm always, I have time to think and I have time to kind of come up with ideas. I wrote Salt City, this techno choreo poem, you know, in my house and, in because I, my dreams, I was dreaming about this Afrofuturistic figure called Salt that is born in the salt mines in 3071 and travels through time and can't find her people. And, you know, and, and I got two grants to, to produce that on a wide scale. And Aku Kadogo, my, direct, my first director, I've worked on this piece for many years and workshopped it, was one of the women in yellow and for color girls. She's one of the original cast members. So it's full, full circle for me to be writing in Korea poem, which is, if people don't know, is poetry and dance combined. And so I, I, it's just in me to be a creative. You know, I mean, I do some collage on canvas. I'm a busybody, you know, I love music and, um, and I love celebrating other people. I really do. I really love, I get something from watching like a good jazz, so like a good, a good hip hop concert, a good dance performance. It feeds me. And so if I can some way contribute to the culture in that way, then I'm happy to do it. 
And what though, like, you know, when you're again, like publishing, putting words out in, into the world and stuff too, like, yeah. do you have any sort of moments of like, yeah, like having to let go or like release any sort of, is there any, like I'm saying like anxiety, doubts, fears that come up of like, these are my words, they're going to go out there into the world. And like, just, you're just able to, because you think it's because you're in usually sort of constant creation mode and sort of like that, that you've like, it's not yeah, so I mean, like attached to the finality. You no, know, I mean this book. This book doesn't belong to me anymore. Like, one, I feel like we, once you write it and you give it away, it's not yours. So I'm sharing it because people want to hear my voice on it. But it's not about me anymore. It becomes about the person. You have the book. It's about what you get out of the book now. And so I'm on to the next project. <laughs> I wrote this book in uh, like 18. You know, it's I'm right. I'm, well, that's also true. I'm somewhere else. You know how the publishing thing goes. You have to you know, hurry up and wait. Yeah. And so um, I'm working on an anthology of um, that's centered around um, Black women in rock and roll. I'm going to be editing that. I'm working on a young adult novel in verse. Um, you know, a children's book. So I have some other things I'm writing. And so, and there's always another poetry book that's going to come. I think pandemic poems, maybe <laughs> or something. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I don't feel attached to it in that way because I feel like in, it's a gift in some ways. And I'm happy to share it. And it's my job to share it. I'm just not, I'm not a recluse kind of artist where I'm like, I write my poems and I feel all sensitive about it. I'm like, yeah, that's what I said, you know? And I don't, in some stuff that I've said in my younger books, I've outgrown those ideas, but they're still in the world. Can't do nothing about it. Um, but it is what it is. This is my current, and I can sit with all these poems today and say, I'm proud of all of them. And they're all, some of them are just very personal poems. I have poems about my father's death in this book, you know, about wanting my daddy back. Like, not even a deep political poem, just wanting my daddy to be here. Uh, when I was on the Apollo, I cried when I won because my father wasn't there to see me. Um, so the work is very personal. It's like, there's a poem called Mix. There's a poem for Sonia Sanchez called Vertical Woman. And she's one of my, you know, uh, she's my heart. I love Sonia Sanchez's work and her life work is, she's 86 young in Philadelphia. And we just, she's amazing. Um, but how she supported me along this journey has been pretty amazing. And poems for Ozzie Davis and Ruby D. You know, these are people who have touched my life in a personal way. So it's not, I'm not distant from the work, but I also know that it's not for me to keep. And it's for Tricia. I want you to have it. You know, you take the book and you read it and, and you get something out of it. And so that's what we're supposed to do. I got more books to write, girl. Yeah. No, I'm just, <laughs> I just like to ask those sort of questions because I'm sure that, you know, people out there that it's, it's hard to put, you know, it's like you so want like, to want to put your stuff out in the world and your voice and your opinion, but then at the same time, it can feel so like, oh no. Like, Just do it. Just yeah. do it. I might've felt like that 20 years ago. Right. But you've been, been all- <laughs> I've been doing this work. And I mean, I've been sharing in front of people that don't look nothing like me for a long time too. Yeah. My audiences are not just black audiences. I have, you know, been all over Europe and all kinds of places. And in this country, on college campuses with white kids who brought me to campus and like, you remind me of Annie DeFranco, you know, like (laughs) the hippie white kids. And so, yeah, I mean, and so being honest in those spaces is not, has not always been easy, but I still show up with myself and I can only be who I am. I can't be somebody else for the audience. So either you like me and you're going like this, like, oh, she is scary as hell. Or you're like, yo, her right there. So, I mean, I've had all those reactions. Uh, It's not always love. Sometimes they mad or I still, Mm -hmm. God is not in America. I was at Lincoln Center doing a gig with um, Ali Jackson's big old production. I was a poet in the middle of it. And I had my book, God is not an American, was there. And so I'm doing a book signing. And this old white guy walked to me and looked at that. And he's like, what does that mean? God is not an American. I was like... 
well, well God isn't. <laughs> so what do you, do you mean? He was mad as hell. And so what? You know what I mean? So, you know, I got his, his little feathers ruffled. Or I made him think and shit. You know, he didn't buy my book, but he was definitely moved. <laughs> yeah. In some kind of way. And and that's the, that's the job. Um, what is this beautifulness? I love it. Okay. So these, I have a product line and these are all phrases that come on keychains. And I have every guest pick not necessarily which phrase they like the most, but which one they feel. I already, they, I already know the one I like. They want as a reminder in their life right now and why. <laughs> uh, yes. Um, um, God, is so many. I love the F-bomb so much. Which one to pick? Um, I, I would normally say fuck your fears, but I'm going to say so fucking grateful. All right. And why are you feeling in that one? Because I'm grateful because of during this pandemic, um, been difficult. I've lost people. You know, my friends have passed away. My friends, family members have died. Grateful that my son and I are healthy. Um, I'm grateful for the friendships that I've I've created. I've had. I'm closer to people now, and one man in particular that has been a friend for me for a decade. Now, because I'm not traveling as much, I'm getting to know him better. I'm getting to know us better. I'm getting to know people. I never had time for phone calls. Yeah, I, I'm able to talk to people on the phone. So I'm grateful for time, grateful that my mother is, uh, who's fighting cancer, is fighting and she's doing good despite the pandemic. We were very isolated because of my mother and I don't get to see her that much, but so fucking grateful that she's not sick. You know what I mean? So health and well, you know, health is wealth. And so yeah. my son is good. I'm good. Um, and, but I have lost people. And so it's just been hard. So you, you help at this point. Mut fuck money, you know, it's, it, anything else, just, you know, being able to be on the planet and seeing people be able to like get through this. I mean, COVID is getting worse right now, you know, as we speak. And so um, just, you know, hoping that we can all be fucking grateful when this is over and that 21 will be a better year for, for us as a, as a, as a globe, you know. That's what I'm believe. That's what, and, and I'm not super woo woo, but I, astrologers keep saying that, you know, once we get through December 2020, things are really changing next year. So I'm just going to keep um, betting my money stars. on those astrologers. Come on, stars. <laughs> Come on, stars. Line There's something up. about something <laughs> hasn't happened in 100 years is starting to happen. So, uh, so that's, <laughs> I'm just holding it. <laughs> I'm on your side. I'm, I'm believing I don't even read it all. I just take bits to cling on to, like, okay, okay. It's going to be. Hard for another month, and then things are really gonna, changing. Things are going to get really good. I think, honestly, for me, it's the spring. The spring is going to be much better for us. And we're going to hopefully <sighs> this vaccine, I'm not a vaccine person, but hopefully this vaccine will work for the people that need it. Um, I'm staying real healthy, um, drinking my alkaline water, doing my apple cider vinegar, doing my, you know, all the things that you do. Vitamin my D. Son, my son has not like, had this many vitamins in his body. He's just like, mommy, how many vitamins? I was like, dude, eat the vitamins. <laughs> like, uh, and I've never used this much Clorox. Like I'm such a healthy person. Are you kidding me? When I saw those two Very big cool. things, the Clorox that were available at some stores, and I was like, oh, I'm getting this Clorox. So, I mean, I've never used bleach. Like, I'm an anti-bleach in my yeah. laundry. Like, um, I'm about to use some bleach. Like, you know, I'm doing different things now. And so, yeah, it's um, a weird time. Yeah, but fucking grateful for for you and for like people supporting the book during this process because it's not been putting a book out. I don't know when your book is coming. When is your book coming out? Oh, I I'm 2022. I'm just that's a blessing. I'm just yeah. at the very beginning. <laughs> it's, it's beautiful. Yeah, and, I, and I'll have one coming up probably that year as well. And uh, it's, <laughs> it's um yeah, I mean because you don't want it to come out during the damn pandemic. So you know you want this to be over so you can put out some work and then you can do book signings and so. What's the book? Can you, are you allowed to talk about it yet? 
It's called F the shoulds, do the once. Okay. It's F the shoulds. That's my life. <laughs> it's about basically taking the word should out of I I took the word should out of my life in 2008 after the sudden passing of my dad and I stopped being mm -hmm. a sound engineer changed my life to mm -hmm. be like I want people to wake up and live their lives. Right. And so like the should so but I actually focus on the word and it makes me so mindful of. So it's about the word should but it's so much deeper. So it's should for me paying attention to that word makes me pay attention to what I'm actually thinking, feeling, believing, and saying, because we use it so much. And even though I don't say the word, I still feel it daily. And so like in my decision making, so it makes me get really clear at all the time about what I'm doing, saying, believing like, oh, this is me feeling like I'm not enough. This is a fear I'm telling myself. This is mm. a doubt. This is, oh, wait, listen to your intuition. Not all these other people are telling you this is the way to do it. Like, so, Same. so it's about the word should, but it's really fucking deeper. <laughs> I love it. No, I like it. I'm here. I'm here for it. I'll get it. I can't wait. Congratulations. 2022 is going to be a better Thank year. Yeah. 2020. Okay. I got three more quick questions. Okay. What is a go-to to raise your joy levels? So something you do when you're not feeling it. <laughs> I, I, I watch uh, a silly romantic comedy. I watch something that's not deeply political. That's I love like one of my favorite silly movies, A Lot Like Love. You know, uh, you know, my best friend's wedding. Like just something corny that's yeah. not going to. And um, yeah, so I escape inside some kind of a movie. Yeah. It helps yeah. me. I get and, that. You know, and comedy boosts your immune system. So laughing is important. Totally so. get that. Uh, I do. Yeah. Same comedy. I read fiction. I, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I ask, I ask everybody this question and how to apply it to their own life. So the phrase is what is easiest for you is not always what is best for you. So it could be like a habit, a way of being that you're naturally wanting to be. So what is easiest for me is blank. What is best for me is Blank. What's easiest for me is falling in love with tall, beautiful men. <laughs> I understand this. <laughs> and what's the second question? What's best for me? <laughs> what's best for me is to focus on my work and um, and to just focus on my career goals and path. <laughs> because it keeps me. I should just focus on poetry, but I tend to be distracted by love. So, yeah. But you just said I should just focus on poetry. So in Trisha's world, you would be like, hmm. Well, I also replace should with want. So then it makes you ask a question. Do I want? What do I want? I want to focus. Yeah, I want to. I, I want It just to. makes a different energy and intention. Like It is, yeah. I do want to focus on poetry. <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> sometimes the tall, fine men get in the way of my poems. All right. The last question is the name of the podcast is Claim It, because I believe that our feelings of being worthy, successful, enough, lovable, whatever it is, fulfilled or not out there somewhere. Once I have this, do this, be this, mm. I'll feel it forever and ever. If you keep yeah. putting it outside of yourself, you'll keep chasing it. Okay. I believe you can claim it for yourself every day. Sometimes you got to do it every moment of the day. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> what are you claiming for yourself right now? Wow. Um I'm claiming, uh, wow, I want to, I want to, I don't want to give you a bullshit answer. Um, I'm claiming my personal peace. I am. I'm claiming my personal peace that I am at peace at all times, um, especially in my own home, claiming peace. Uh, I need it. There's a lot of, uh, other energies in the world right now and a lot of distractions from love. And, uh, 
And I think people are not, are not peaceful. Their spirits now feel good. And so I'm claiming peace because I need it. Yeah. Thank you for claiming that for yourself. And I'm hoping everyone out there, like I feel that right now. Yeah. A lot is happening right now and it can really rattle that. Yeah. But you can claim your inner peace right now, your personal peace, regardless of the environment. Meditation. I do it. I do meditation and all those things to help me be still. And being still is not easy for a busy body brain like mine. So being still is a revolutionary practice for me. Um, Absolutely. So yeah, claiming peace. Love it. Thank you so, so, so So much. Good talking to you. Okay. Wow. I hope you are now in love with Jessica just as much as I am. (laughs) Go get her book, We Want Our Bodies Back. Poems. Amazing. That's obviously her latest book, but she has several. And, um, Check her out at Jessica Caremore, jessicacaremore.com for full show notes and links to things we mentioned. Go to yourdrialgist.com slash podcast and you'll find all of the podcast interviews there. And for all things me, of course, yourdrialgist.com and I'm at yourdrialgist on social media. I love hearing from you. I love hearing that you are listening, why you're listening, which episodes you're listening to, what parts of the episode struck out you the most. So please DM me, share on social media and tag me. And um, if you haven't already, please hit the subscribe button wherever you listen. And you could do me another favor, write a review for the podcast and then screenshot it and send it to me at podcast at yourjoyologist.com and I'll send you a little gift for my product line. Maybe a keychain, a magnet, an art print, maybe the new Daily Connection journal. You never know. And of course, don't forget I have a full line of products perfect for gift giving for yourself and for your loved ones. You can get the products directly at shop.yourjoyologist.com and um, the Daily Inspiration app also in the app store own your awesome is what it's called own your awesome and it's hundreds of powerful thoughts and affirmations to empower you to get you out of your own way to get you looking at things differently you can get it at the apple app and the google play store and um you know since i was talking you know the ad (laughs) my own ad for my own product today was for the Daily Connection Journal. And I mentioned acknowledging yourself and how important that is, which I really, truly think it is. That's how I'm going to end this episode is what can you acknowledge yourself for right now? And you don't have to think of like some big, like what? If if you're new to acknowledging yourself, it can seem very like, I don't even know. You just be like, I acknowledge myself for drinking water today. I acknowledge myself for showing up for my life. I acknowledge myself for listening to something that inspired me and, you know, uh, intrigued me. I acknowledge myself for, you know, moving my body today because I know how good that makes me feel. I acknowledge myself for standing up to myself. <laughs> plenty of things. So often I like to say to think smaller that sometimes we're looking for some big, beautiful words. But when you just start to think small, then every day will become easier and easier and easier. And it's something to do every single day. Acknowledge yourself. Regardless if whether you're like, I don't even feel like I did anything of accomplishment today. You can find something to acknowledge yourself. Maybe it's you acknowledge yourself for 
not doing anything today so that you could rest, recover, restore. (laughs) You did something today, though, because you listened to this podcast. That's good. That's great. (laughs) All right. Love you. Hit me up at your joyologist.